Good morning, everyone. I'll be reading from Paul's letter to the church at Rome this morning, chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we focused on our vision for missions at ECC, and this week we return to our series entitled Living Right Side Up. What I've mentioned routinely during this series is that often when we live right side up in this present world, it feels almost as though we're living upside down because so often the rest of the world gives us messages that are not right side up living. They're upside down living. So this morning, I have a question for you at the beginning. Who in the world is this person? I'm talking about the person that was in this passage. Who is it? Somebody said Paul. Pretty good, because he wrote it. But another question might be this. Is Paul, even in the first person, Speaking of a hypothetical person, but not himself? Is Paul describing himself before he came to Christ? Or is Paul describing himself after he came to Christ? Is Paul painting a picture of an immature believer? Not one that's really got it together. Or is he referring to a believer who's not yet filled with the Spirit? Um, I ask you those questions because I hope you're answering them in your head. 
it's real nice to be able to answer in your head because you're not challenged to answer out loud. But since I asked the question, I have to answer out loud. Before I do, let me say this. This is a debate. That is, who was actually saying the words or who do they refer to? Throughout the history of the church, it goes back even to the early church fathers. One early church father's name was Origen, and he said this couldn't possibly be Paul speaking about himself after he was converted. It had to be Paul speaking about himself before he came to Christ. Another eminent church scholar, his name was Augustine, and he said the exact opposite. He said, no, Origen is wrong. This actually was Paul speaking about himself in the present tense as a mature Christian. So what do I think? I think it's actually two things. I believe that Paul is speaking about the human condition that everyone experiences. That is to say, even though he's speaking directly to Christians, he may also, by extension, be speaking to any number of people who even without Christ are trying to be good and seem, in spite of their best efforts, to fall short. But more specifically, I believe Paul is speaking about himself and about us and our struggle with sin. I have a, um, a wonderful slide coming up. It's called Three Lessons. And in the first service, as I was advancing the slides, I realized there were four points. Somebody told me after the first service, that's really an appropriate sermon to make such a mistake because, as you say, nobody's perfect. Point number one of four. Here's the lessons we learned from this passage. One, we're all human, every one of us. None of us are different than the other. Paul's no different than you and I. And for me, that's a source of great encouragement. Because Paul was an incredible theologian. He was a wonderful follower of God. He was a saint. He was so far above what I will ever achieve that to know that Paul was actually speaking about himself and to know that his description is very human, oh my, that just warms my heart. Paul's human, I'm human, and so are you. The second thing, it's a lesson from Paul's words. And that's this, human knowledge is not enough. My understanding of God and myself, it only takes me so far. It's limited. Whatever insight I have concerning myself and evil and my struggle, as good as my insight is concerning myself, it's insufficient for the problem. 
Or to put it another way, a direct contradiction of a philosopher who's very famous called Socrates. To know what is good is not equal with doing what is good. Socrates said, in effect, and we could splice this one up. I taught enough philosophy to know you could see it a couple of different ways. Socrates said, to know the good is to do the good. If you truly know it, you will do it. I think that this passage is a contradiction to that. To know the good does not mean we will do it. Because human knowledge concerning the good is not enough. There's a third lesson in these words. Human resolution is inadequate. Why is human resolution inadequate to the task? Because we're slaves to our own will. As Paul says, I do what I do not want to do. I have a number of friends who are recovering alcoholics. And there are many ways to deal with alcoholism. There's a lot of recovery programs. And what I'm about to say is not to endorse one over the other. But what I am about to say is a quote from what the Alcoholics Anonymous organization calls the big book or the good book. And in the big book, we hear this phrase. We, spoken as an alcoholic, we have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. I want to use that phrase and apply it to those of us who are not alcoholics. But those of us who strive to follow God. Who have received Christ as our Savior. And I want to put it this way. You and I, Christ followers, we have a daily reprieve from self, self-centeredness that is dependent on our daily surrender to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul, after all of this description, which could be kind of morbid, ends it in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God because there is no condemnation for those who walk in the Spirit instead of walking in the flesh. Thanks be to God. My human resolutions, when I say I will not do that again, I will not act that way again, I will not step into that sin again. Those human resolutions are no better than my New Year's resolutions on January 1. But those resolutions, when they are 
linked with absolute surrender. Day after day, moment after moment, to the Holy Spirit, then they bring life. There's a fourth point of three. I already gave it to you. (laughs) Human diagnosis is not the cure. What do I mean by that? I I mean that even if I have a deep self-understanding, even if I understand myself inside out, even if I diagnose my problem thoroughly, it's not my cure. Why is it not my cure? Because I'm the problem, so I can't be the solution. The cure has got to come from the outside, or else I'm hopeless to be cured. I want to give you what I just did, the rest of the story. The rest of the story really happens beyond Romans 7, even before, but especially beyond. And the rest of the story looks like this. Freedom requires daily surrender. Remember the passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 1? I want you to surrender your very self, your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed any longer to the ways of the world, but be conformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is acceptable and, and the perfect will of God. The rest of the story means I must surrender daily. We've said that already. And when I surrender, a new person emerges. And it's myself transformed by the present power of the Holy Spirit. Third part of the rest of the story is this. Forgiveness is always available. That too is good news. Because just like I failed last week, I'm going to fail again this week. And just like last week, I confessed my sins and begged for mercy and forgiveness and asked to be restored, so too this week, I'll be there. I don't want to diminish the character of God with this statement, which seems a little bit extreme, but don't take it to the extreme. You know why this is true? Because God can't help but forgive. It is in his very nature to forgive. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. So when I fall and I ask again, he forgives once again. To me, that's why prayers of confession are so incredibly important. I've mentioned before how important those prayers are to me personally. Sometimes they say words that I don't seem to even be able to utter. I begin every day reading one of those prayers. Why? Not because I'm not forgiven, but because I want to remember who I am 
and I want to remember grace. There's a third part to the rest of the story. Christ has become sin for us. I may say the words again. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, has become sin for us. As long as I live, my friends, I will never understand that statement. I don't know how it was possible. I don't know why he did it. I don't know the depth of the forgiveness that I wish I knew. I don't completely understand that statement, but I believe it at the bottom of my being because it is my only hope. It's the notion of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, and it is central to our faith. We must hang on to it as a lifeline because Christ became sin for us. And in his death and resurrection, he conquered death for us. And because of that, he gives us the very power of the Holy Spirit as we live for him. Oh, there's one final thing. It's part of the rest of the story. Eventually, one day, the work will be complete. I'm so grateful for the grace of Christ. But I'm also like Paul in Romans 7, frustrated with myself. And when I'm in the depth of most of my frustration, I must remember this. One day, God, through Jesus Christ, is going to completely, completely finish the work. I don't think I've ever ended a sermon this way. And for those of you who are not particularly inclined to long readings, let me ask you to have patience. Because I'm going to read some edited words by the Apostle Paul to tell that story. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, still we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes 
with wordless groans. Ever been there? I have. And we know, Paul says, that all things work for good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Sometimes when I'm in the middle of self and sin, these words come to mind. Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? No one. Because Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all of these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all God's creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so says Paul later, to you, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we are uh, so grateful for the honesty of the Apostle Paul, for the honesty of Scripture. When we read words like these, we realize not only are they about the great saints? They're also about us. And when we read words like these, we're reminded that the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we pray as we go from this place, Lord, that you will help us to live right side up. You will transform the way we think. You will remind us that we cannot climb out of our own human, sinful, selfish disposition. You will allow us to embrace the fact that we cannot achieve righteousness. Nobody is perfect. But you will reinforce, based on that, that information from your word, you will reinforce that you are our righteousness. And then make us grateful. And because of it, may we not be slaves to sin,
but servants of the living God. In whose name we pray, amen.